Episode 5 of The History Files. I'm Gordon Fry. I'm Dylan Honnold. And today we're going to talk about uh, a lot of different subjects, as usual. But uh, before we get into talking about the bureaucratic model, uh, we'll go over a few current events. To begin with, the most current of current events that I want to talk about is the fairly recent assassination of Boris Nemtsov, in Moscow. Now, a little background on Boris Nemtsov is he was a, an opposition leader in Russia, uh, opposing, of course, the rule or administration of Vladimir Putin. And his assassination on the streets of Moscow, not far from the Kremlin, have raised lots and lots of issues as to who might have done this. Uh, any ideas, Dylan? Well, my take on it is, for starters, Putin had nothing to do with it, um, in my mind. The, the, the gentleman who was, who was killed was much more valuable to Putin alive than dead. Um, Boris had a served better purposes alive because his approach to um, being against Putin served as a shining light on Putin's willingness to have dissension within the country um, the notion of free speech um, is is valued in the Western system. And so whether or not you truly have free speech, it's about having the appearance of free speech. So it, it worked to Putin's advantage to have this gentleman doing his thing. The, the question um, that I would ask in an analysis like this is who has what to gain um, I'm, I'm a big currency fan in terms of analysis and how I define currency is, is a representation of a commodity or a, a known entity that has value and the two types in my world is power and money and if you have one you can get the other and in a political melu power can be based in appearances our friend Machiavelli and so trying to trying to stay on track here with the question who did it I would take Putin 
as an individual and his higher level uh, cronies, for lack of a better word, I would take them off the table. It doesn't make sense. The guy alive fits the narrative that Putin is trying to convey. So in other words, if we go to the legal term of qui bono, who benefits, he does not. He does not. He benefits by the man being alive and doing his job. Yes. Uh, from what I understand of the this gentleman, uh, Boris Nemtsov, Nemtsov the, um, the sources that I referenced were... Uh, claimed that he was a, a rather honest gentleman, which, of course, you know, that's sort of uh, awkward in a political sphere to be an honest man. But if he was, then that leads the question to, was he snuffed by some of the oligarchs who he was, you know, uh, maybe stepping on their toes? He also supposedly was walking with a very attractive young lady when he was assassinated. So, was he stepping on some oligarch's toes by dating the wrong woman? Was she a honeypot that led him to somewhere where he was shot? What? Then, of course, we can get into international ramifications. Uh, it's not as though we, in the United States or the West have uh, turned our noses up for moral reasons uh, against assassination in the past. So, who benefits? Who benefits from his death? And you, and you were talking about honesty. Um, honesty is a tool, as is anything else. Um, and in terms of this gentleman stepping on toes either the wrong date, as in the, the, the wrong date as in person, a uh, partner type of thing, uh, was his honesty, was part of his honesty shedding light on the huge amounts of money that um, change hands gets in, get invested and whatnot as a result of uh, industry, be it extraction industry, manufacturing, arms, and those kinds of things. Um, that one makes sense uh, because it has that the money component. Um, could those same oligarchs or a group of them be sending a message to Putin? Is there a connection with, um, is there a faction within Russia that is expressing their displeasure with his choices through this type of act? Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. That's a, that's definitely valid. Yeah. And so not being in an expert in contemporary uh, Russian politics, uh, I, I like to pose those questions and then do an analysis. I'm not going to be so bold as to, is, as to say, 
so-and-so did it or a representative of this group did it. But I, for me, the issue is don't let um, one's notion, one's own notions of ethics and morality limit the analysis. Um, well, we would never do that, so nobody else would. I think that's misguided. So I also want to point out with this that Yeltsin's got an 85% popularity rating as opposed to what's Obama got. Least last I heard it was somewhere in the 30s. Uh, this gentleman, Boris Nemtsov, his party had something like 5% of the vote uh, in the last elections in Russia. So hardly a major player. Hardly a major player. But, on the other hand, could he have been a representative of hope that of the, uh, a non-Soviet inner circle person coming up from, well, academia? Yeah, it, and if, let's create that picture um, of an academic a scientist, um, a moral compass, a, an individual who represents the people or an idea. Um, I see, see the similarities between Martin Luther King, uh, the Kennedy clan. They represented a very um, positive let's aspire to scenario and that does not bode well for the status quo um, it's significant change the status quo is benefiting those who are in power and a, a, a populist type of movement grounded in ideals uh, democracy Boy, if I was an Englishman in the 1750s, we know how that worked out. <laughs> um, yes. So if you snuff out, snuff out a beacon of hope early on, you are applying um, a, a big stick to, okay, we're going to get rid of your hope immediately, and this is what it's going to cost anybody who thinks are going to replace it. Also, taking another look outlook at this, another viewpoint, is uh, Dr. Thomas Sowell, in his article from, I believe it was yesterday, pointed out, nope, it wasn't Thomas Sowell, it was uh, Paul Craig Roberts, pointed out that Putin had two years ago predicted that the Western powers would assassinate some leading opposition figure in Russia so as to paint Putin with the, the tar uh, brush of an assassin. So, anyways, uh, lots and lots of questions, not very many answers. No, and uh, the, the, first of all, in my view, it's always going to be speculation because I, 
there's no way that we will know the whole truth for a bunch of reasons. One, it's half a world away in a completely different government structure that has different rules and and norms in what they do with information. There are cultural differences, etc. Even in this country, the question of uh, are we ever going to know the truth, uh, one that's filtered through um, agencies that are charged with disseminating it, what what are their agendas in what and how they disseminate information, and then you've got the agendas of the press uh, until it finally filters down to the individual on the street. And when it can take a lot of thought and um, uh, it, it can be a real challenge. And then you have to have people who care enough to think about it. And that's the crux of it. So, moving on just briefly, uh, ben, Benjamin Netanyahu just gave a an address to the U.S. Congress, and uh, there's a lot of flap going around, uh, pro and con. The Republicans, of course, are holding Netanyahu up as a paragon of virtue. The Democrats are... Uh, calling him a spoiled child, and you have any take on that? Well, as, as we've talked so many times before, um, I I look at the Middle East and the complexities of those relationships. Um, I'm always cautious to say too much because the relationships and the centuries that go into the politics as a broad spectrum uh, umbrella term for Israel specifically and the region in general. Um, Because the hype around Netanyahu's speech positive and negative seems to be largely split on party lines. That smacks of agenda to me. Very partisan politics. Yeah, very partisan. And so, not knowing the content of his speech beyond um, Iran and nuclear weapons and his his plea for the security of Israel. I I would have to couch my opinions on it is how does welcoming Netanyahu versus keeping him at arm's length serve the purposes of the parties? And I think I'll I'll, I'll stop there. And again, I'm you're you're asking me questions and I'm answering you with more questions and I think that's a plea to the audience as as much as anything else to say okay ask questions and if if it is significant enough if you care enough don't be shy about keeping it in your own norms right and if I have anything to say you know need discussion on this I would say 
that well, the Israelis have had an, had a problem with the Persian Empire for about three thousand years, so it's nothing that's going to be solved with within our lifetimes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, just forget about it. And uh, that isn't going to happen. <laughs> no, it's still going to be there. Let's move on to media. This is Hollywood, sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. Today in our history in the media, I want to mention a television show, a pilot done by Amazon. It's called The Man in the High Castle. It's based on a Philip K. Dick novel of the same name that was written in 1962, and it takes place in 1962. The premise is uh, alternative history based on the idea that the Axis won World War II in 1947 by dropping a nuclear weapon on Washington, D.C. And of course, in 1962, that was considered a very bad thing to happen. Uh, times have changed. But the, uh, the premise is that the Axis, in form of Germany, took over the east coast of the United States, and Japan took over the west coast leaving a strip of neutral territory in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, the book, or pardon me, the television show explores some of the international politics going on between the two allies of Germany, Nazi Germany, and Imperial Japan, and uh, also delves a bit into what it's like to have an American fascist dictatorship so it looks like a very good film. The production values are very high, and acting is excellent, and lots of nice 1950s and 60s automobiles to look at. The, um, the production, is, as I understand it, has been greenlit, so they have the pilot episode on Amazon at the moment, and they are greenlit to complete the series. So it looks like it ought to be a really, really interesting, interesting uh, television show to to watch. Man only has one lifetime, but history can remember you forever. So before we get into the, I guess you call it the main discussion for today, uh, I'm going to interview Dylan and just so we can get a, an idea of who he is and where he's coming from and so that our listeners out in Listen Land can just have an idea of why Dylan and I have such um, strange views on things. To begin with, Dylan, so your full name is Dylan Thomas Honnold. Yes. Uh, Dylan Thomas being a very famous Welsh poet. Yes, and in fact, uh, my grandmother on my mother's side uh, came from Wales when she was 10. And um, my father's name was Thomas and so the Dylan came from the Welsh side. Thomas, my father's side, happened to be a Welsh poet. That was not the intent at the time, but I do lay claim to that as, um, yeah, Dylan Thomas the poet, although I don't rhyme. Now, didn't you say you visited Wales a couple times as a child? Yeah, I, I was uh, visited family in Wales. My grandmother did a marvelous job of maintaining contact with her cousins, and um, at, from age 10, when she came over to the States and corresponded with her 
cousins um, regularly through her life. Had an opportunity for a couple of those cousins to visit her uh, in about 1975. And tragically, on a bus trip from Washington to California, these two cousins, uh, the bus was involved in an accident and one of my cousins was the only one uh, killed, the one fatality. So my mother um, ended up being the liaison between the two families, uh, one in Wales and one in the United States, to make arrangements for that. And a year later, we had the opportunity to go visit, and she was a, we were able to meet uh, the folks that my mother had worked with uh, regarding this tragedy and, of course, um, spent six weeks in Scotland, England, and Wales, the majority of it in Wales, and uh, got to meet my family, uh, lots of people, museums, etc. And then I went back on my mother's 70th birthday with her and uh, got reacquainted with the family and um, took advantage of some of the freedom that comes with a driver's license. And um, I spent a fair amount of time in castles and, and museums. Very good. So, what's your uh, well? What's your background? Where are you from, and what did you study? So, another way of saying, what are my biases? That's a good way to put it. Okay, um, I grew up in Port Angeles, and my father worked in the utilities and management. My mother was a teacher. Um, I. Upon graduation, I bolted the Clallam County and uh, got as far away as I could at the first college that I went to in Walla Walla, Whitman, not the penitentiary. And uh, over the course of years, meandered through uh, West Eastern Washington, Montana, and then back to Washington, um, did a number of odd jobs. Uh, primarily retail, but did some flight instruction with ultralights and decided that, well, I'd best be getting a college education of some sort. Um, through those travels, I was heavily involved in partisan politics, um, ran congressional campaigns, state campaigns, governor, secretary of state when I was in Montana, did some um, smaller localized campaigns when I was in, came back to Washington and I thought well what do I like politics and I need to go back and, and get um, a degree and so I went uh, long story short went to Western Washington University in Bellingham Bellingham and um, got my master's in 2003 in political science and uh, bachelor's in 2000 in political science. My master's is focused on public policy and administration. So translated, I enjoy studying bureaucracies. Perfect, because we're going to talk about them a little later. So I guess you pretty much covered my next question, which is going to be career path. Uh, you were all over the map to begin with, but focusing eventually primarily on politics. Yeah, and politics, I, I'm a big definitions guy. 
Um, and so when I say, I happen to have the worldview that politics, even if you hate politics, you engage in it every day to some degree. Um, if you are in charge of somebody, it's either as a, as a parent, as part of your job, if you're part of the family, um, you fit into your place uh, as 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 a parent or as an authority figure. You you can manage those relationships with authority because you are the parent, or you can manage relationships through power. My definition of power is getting people to do things that they wouldn't normally do, and through a let's call it more artsy um, coercion, personality, uh, understanding or belief in psychology uh, and those kinds of things you, you engineer behaviors in other people. You've said in the past to me that you are a realist and that you you're brought to this reality-based worldview due to an incident in your life. Um, I've had lots of incidences that serve as illustrative purposes. Which one? I'm I'm thinking of the the airplane. Oh. um, Stop. Is this something you don't want to get in? Right, we're going. So, Dylan, you've, you've mentioned that you've had moments of clarity in your life. Um, let's talk about that for a minute. From an academic perspective, um, a good friend of mine, when he was at Stanford and I was at Eastern Washington University, he said, I read this really cool book. You need to read it. You'll like it. It's called The Prince by Machiavelli. And... I've, I've read it a couple of times since that day in about 1984, and I really have come to appreciate that piece of work because Machiavelli, um, and, and his name has become associated with, as a pejorative, as a dirty and underhanded um, approach to and I'll say doing business to capture interactions that happen to be in a political context. Um, The point is, he approached things in how things are, as opposed to getting bogged down with um, how things should be. The mechanics of that um, involved choices uh, that he was advocating in terms of, is it better to be loved or feared if you can't have both? Um, And the appearance of a given characteristic, you have to, whether you are a good person or not, if you are in leadership, what's important is what people think you are and so you want to manage how you present yourself so that it suits your needs as a leader leader 
rather than necessarily giving people what they think they want. So, so that was a, a, a benchmark, if you will. Um, and admittedly, I, my early readings of that took it as um, license to be a jerk. <laughs> and um, I, I have since modified that a little bit. Um, but I, I, I like how that plays out, how his description of things and how to navigate the world and politics and in, in light of the, the pending bureaucratic conversation, um, it's an incredibly valuable tool to use in um, dealing with systems, um, how to interact with them, how to analyze behaviors and those kinds of things. Well, Machiavelli, excuse me, Machiavelli was definitely a realist. And what is marvelous about him is he was a small r Republican who had to find his way through a very monarchist world. And uh, he tells you exactly how to do it. Yeah, and and I've I've read authors saying that basically with the the change in the Florentine government and and correct me if I'm wrong, um, politics and history are brilliantly interwoven. So, um, th- feel free to jump in and say no, that's wrong. Oh, I agree completely. That I'm wrong. No, that you that oh. politics and history are interwoven. Okay, I'm, you're wrong at other times, but this one you're right. Oh, well, we'll save those times for later. <laughs> Um, he wrote The Prince as essentially a job application to the incoming ruler, uh, was it, I believe it's the Medici. Right, Medici. Medici. Right. Um, and suggesting that uh, here here is a, a way that you should manage your rule um, to maximize uh, success, your own success. Um, how how does that play into realism in terms of how I like to analyze things <clears throat> is it is what it is um, and in dealing with problems be it legislation, policy development and administrative rules um, how do you con- construct solutions to a problem are in like a good politician generally only identifies problems that they have solutions for right never bring up anything that you don't already know the answer for absolutely it's a good lawyerly thing yeah and and it's consistent with a, a guy named John Kingdon who created the garbage can model of policy development? And there's several. Uh, I got to hear more about this later. There, there's several sections in it um, that are, are procedural. But when we t- when we start talking about bureaucracies and reality, and and first of all, so many of the problems that we encounter or ignore 
in our lives as a civilization, be it local or international, so many of those problems are, are so horrific that they go beyond um, a, a rational person's ability to understand. And so many times we've in, encountered things that are so horrific that they can't possibly exist. Like the uh, the Holocaust, for example. The Holocaust and... Uh, Lord Avon, when during the early parts of the war, when he was getting reports, and this is this is from the uh, series World of War, um, he was interviewed, and, and the gist of of the interview was, we got reports of of this thing happening, but we knew the reports couldn't be correct because it was inconceivable that it was happening. Machiavelli if I may project, would have taken a similar report and said, okay, that, that makes sense if I understand what the, what the end goal is. In a Machiavellian world, some of these horrific things, they, they make sense. Uh, Rwanda is another example. So, in other words, what Lord Avon, had he bothered reading Mein Kampf, he would have been able to say, oh yeah, this is what they're doing. Yeah. But since he didn't want... <laughs> Back to Sun Tzu, from earlier discussions, if you know your enemy as well as yourself, you will never lose a battle. Yeah. And and, and that's where the rub is. And um, what I find fascinating is that Machiavelli um, is often cited as the first political scientist. And different brands of, an, of political theory focus on or explain things from different perspectives. Um, Machiavelli, for me, gives you permission to acknowledge that it's okay to acknowledge horrific or extreme ideas and possibilities that you're not a bad person for thinking this horrific thing. Just like a Marxist approach to things gives a, it legitimizes a type of analysis that can look at um, challenges, problems in a society that are income-based, that are class-based. Um, rational choice the, the end policy will be that which provides it, it's the outcome of a group of rational actors coming to agreement which I think is is uh, fascinating it's a nice theory it's a great theory <laughs> it's a great theory and hence I, I refer to it as rat choice not <laughs> rational choice so, who is the most important person in your life? Besides my mother. No. Just who is the most important person in your life? Oh, that would, that would be my mother. Okay. And why so? But One of the great things about my mother is um, she is in the age demographic that um, she is a child of the Depression um, and... 
came from, as I mentioned, my grandmother from Wales. My grandfather is second generation Czechoslovakian. And so there's this brilliant mix of not only old school, but old world in, in her upbringing. And then she does what all women, well, strike that. Women had the choice of going to college to be a teacher or going to college. And uh, there was one other alternative. Nurse? Uh, uh, yeah, I think it was a nurse. College yeah. or nur- or uh, n- teacher or nurse. Mom went to be a teacher, um, got her degree, raised kids, two of them, and then decided to go back to work. And... She was, she played the role of what a woman in the late 50s and early 60s is supposed to do, um, and then said, no, I want more. So she went back to school to get some updated certifications, started teaching. And to make a long story short, my mother has had to push the boundaries of social boundaries, what she grew up with in terms of what a person in her situation should be and being honest and true to herself in becoming what she believes she can be. Um, and I, and I use, uh, firearms with her as an example. Um, bless her. I, uh, took her out shooting uh, several times and she loved it. Here's this 75 year old woman excellent health um, very attractive by any metric, not because she's my mother and she's out there hooting and hollering because she's getting to shoot 45 caliber caliber pistols. I think that's cool because she would never have done that as a 20 year old or a 15 year old. She wouldn't have been allowed to do it. So she really represents to me the idea of okay, you got to play the game so that it gets you in a place where you can do what you want. So, what's your what's your favorite film? Saving Private Ryan and Gladiator. I I I've got two very distinct I I, I couldn't say one is better than the other. That both resonate to me for different reasons. Okay. And what's your favorite color? Black. And why is that? Because I'm partially colorblind, and colors are the worst possible joke that has been played on humankind. So you're not a bee? No, I would be starved. Starving? I'd be dead if I was a bee. Okay. And my favorite tree is oak. If I was a tree, I'd be an oak. Wyatt, you are an oak. I am an oak. History lives again. So our main topic of conversation this episode is going to be what I'll call the bureaucratic model. We've been hitting on edges of it and some of the high points. But bureaucracies have been something that that seem to go with... um, with most forms of, of human endeavor that get complex. And every empire has had 
bureaucracies, uh, two that come to mind being incredibly large bureaucracies are the Roman Empire and the Spanish Empire. Both had these incredibly, actually for the times, efficient bureaucracies. But uh, one of the best illustrations of, of the bureaucratic model, in my mind, was from a cartoon from years ago of Asterix the Gaul, and the, the particular book was entitled The Labors of Asterix, and one of them was dealing with the Roman bureaucracy. So bureau bureaucracy has a, just the word drips with obfuscation and difficulty in trying to maneuver within it and and just difficulty. So so Dylan, what's your take? What what's your definition of the bureaucratic model? I'm a fan of uh Niskanen's model. He was a guy that uh wrote late fifties through the sixties and I, I came across him through going, you know, in class and whatnot. And as a student, as a non-traditional student, being older, and having done the political things that I had done, one of the things that I was looking for in my education was to help me develop a framework for what I had experienced. Um, the the mythology that I had gotten through the first 12 years of my education didn't match what I experienced up until I went back to school in my mid-30s. And in a nutshell, Niskanen um, proposes that bureaucracies their existence is to serve themselves. And um, that they are budget maximizers in that the more responsibility they take on, the more resources they need to get that, to, to meet those responsibilities, that requires more money. And the bigger the bureaucracy, the more power you know, which going back to that currency comment early on, um, the more power, or the, the bigger the bureaucracy, the more power and influence those at the top have and accumulate. And I, I use uh, services like unemployment, uh, workforce development, child protective services, uh, economic development from the public sector side, you know, those entities that are created to do a particular job. Um, and education, and me wrong, I come from a family of teachers, so it, this is uh, not a comment on teachers, it is a comment on the system and within what, with the, what they work within. And so the layperson, or a person that is not in a bureaucracy, I think has the misconception that, that well, CPS exists to protect children. 
Department of Education exists to educate kids. No, it doesn't. It exists for job security of those people employed by that entity and they work around protecting kids, teaching kids, doing economic development. So if the bureaucracy actually does its job, that's sort of a serendipity? Yeah, yeah. And it's and, and, and then the brilliant thing about uh, bureaucracies is because so much of what they do is, is intangible, um, you know whether an education system is doing its job um, if most of the of the students that come out of it more or less know basic stuff but who are the the people who actually develop the metrics for success the bureaucracy itself the bureaucracy itself so if you want a successful bureaucracy let that bureaucracy develop its own metric it's brilliant and and it sounds cynical but my own experience um, within bureaucracies and this is after having done workforce development and economic development from the public sector side when I found myself um, in need of services it dawned on me if I want a good delivery of services for me I can't go in and demand that I get this and that or it's your job to give me X Y and Z just for fun I sat down with an individual and I said okay what do you bureaucrat how do you benefit by me being successful through your program and my whole experience changed in that I was actually being offered things that I would have been entitled to but you don't hear about them and you don't read about them in easy to access pamphlets and brochures it was like oh yeah oh by the way you're entitled to this because of your situation I never would have known it but I framed my approach in okay how is my success or your success as a bureaucrat linked to my success so don't go in demanding something don't demand services but put it in the framework of how do I make your job a little easier how do I how do I frame it so you get kudos in your job so your average say high school diploma single mom is not likely to be able to take full advantage of the services she's entitled to because she just doesn't have a clue as to how the system works and it isn't likely to right and whether it is the end result or whether it's intentional the more complicated it is the the more education you need and a better understanding of that very system in order to take full benefit of it 
And so it actually, if, if you're looking to um, provide resources, and now I'm, I'm speaking as a bureaucrat, it works to my favor to make things as complicated as possible because that increases my ability to control the flow and I can direct it to where it's going to be to my advantage as a distributor. This person can, has a high probability of being successful and so I'm going to give them what they know and they're entitled to and that's a that's a big thing here is um, if if folks are entitled to services and that's part of the social contract right then then they should have them but I will and I will give them what they're entitled to and what they know about if I really think this person is going to uh, make me look good in doing my job and then here's a little bit extra so by virtue of being complicated and um, hard to get information um, being selective as to how it how it is made available uh, it it serves the bureaucracy it serves the institution and it serves the individuals within that institution oh and if we manage to protect some kids, if we manage to get a highway built and maintained, um, that's awesome. Then we have something to point to and say, look, we did our jobs. As far as the, the taxpayer and the consumer, but in reality, I know that I have a job to come to tomorrow. So the mission statement doesn't almost at all have much to do with its the reality of its existence. Absolutely. The, the, the mission statement, the value statement, that's marketing. And it's about as useful as the stuff that I haul out of my horse stalls in a wheelbarrow because it's smoke and mirrors. If you were to go to a college that whose mission statement said X or Y. That mission state and, and you went there because of a mission statement, then that mission statement was was successful because it got you there. One of my favorite things, and I've encountered this in, in many places, is there's a, a big push for uh, critical thinking skills. That's I, I chuckle whenever I read that because they're taking this notion of critical thinking skills and saying, you know, we need to teach this uh, our students and and soon-to-be members of the workforce have to be able to think through things and all. Um, no. If you were to apply the same critical thinking skills that an institution is claiming to value and teach and apply those cr critical thinking skills to that institution, you would then go to a different one. So it's actually counterproductive, which is why I say marketing. It, it, yeah. it's, it's a great tool to make people think that they're getting something that's really important. It is very important, but not to the institution. So would you say that um, 
the, a, a, any bureaucracy, whether it's public sector or private sector, is sort of like a life form, and its job is to grow and exist. Yes, yes, and and um, and it's brilliant fodder for the politicians. Um, I, I think you would have to really stretch to uh, find a political body, federal, state, with elected officials who went out there and said, we're going to expand the bureaucracy. No, they don't. They, they don't say that. But you would be hard-pressed to find a politician, and I'm, I'm thinking presidents, who has said anything except the government's too big and has actually legi- made legitimate gains in making it smaller. It's a sa- it's marketing and it's sales. Why on earth would a politician actually want to make the bureaucracy smaller for their own reasons? Or- so bureaucracies are popular whipping boys, but they always get their funding. Oh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and at a minimum, you can bet that ninety nine point whatever percent of their budget will be spent by the end of the budget cycle. Well, gee, if you did if you cut your expenses by twelve percent, then you know that we're going to at least cut next year's budget by twelve because you showed that we you didn't need it. Right. This is the standard thing of. We're at the end of the fiscal year. We have to blow a heck of a lot of money so that we can still get the same amount next year. Right. And and again, this sounds incredibly cynical, um, very negative, very anti-establishment. But again, coming from a self-interest perspective, okay, um, public or private sector, it's okay to want to make money. Uh, it's the mark of success. Uh, expanding business, uh, more products, both in straight numbers or the quantity. Okay, that's good. All right, business growth is good. Business growth is good. There is a belief that government growth is bad. Now, and and I will not hazard a guess to say that's true or false. Personally, I don't care. It gets into carrying capacity and if you want a big government, that's great. Can you afford it? But if you were to go to a public sector individual who is a salaried employee, are they interested in having a smaller bureaucracy? The only way they might be interested in that is if all the cuts come either above them or below them. Or from another institution. Or from another institution. And so, again, we go through self uh, this enlightened self-interest. Um, lots and lots of people go out and go to work to do good work. Right. How many people out there go to their job with the end goal of getting rid of it. 
Exactly. What happens if this program is actually successful? Bingo. <clears throat> um, and and that is, uh, I, I will say that I've had personal experience with that, um, in that here here's our goals, here's our outcomes, and we're going to fund this. And we're going, to, we meaning the bureaucracy, the, the funding source is going to be a part of your metric to determine whether you've achieved your goals, your stated goals, how well you've um, met them, and, and where have you excelled. It seems to me that if you're spending a bunch of money to find out if something works, you would somehow want to take that mechanism that works and incorporate it into your system because it works. It's successful, it's efficient, you know, however you want to define success. And that also presupposes that you're creating a system to solve a real problem. Right. All right. Like, for instance, the war on drugs. What happens if we win? How many people are now out of a job? Yeah, exactly. And so, it, as a public good, the war on drugs, at least on the surface, is a, a good thing. I mean, very few people would suggest that, um, well, crack houses, and I'm dating myself, the, the um, ecstasy these days, and... Uh, you know, the whole underground market. There's not very many people who would say, no, 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 that's a good thing. So we need, um, most people, we need to combat that. We need to get rid of it. Okay, and so we pour billions, literally billions of dollars into our drug enforcement efforts, which I agree with. But let's not get too excited about success and failure because if it's successful, We'll be saving all those billions of dollars. People will be out of a job. Immigration is another great example. The spending on uh, border patrols. Again, I'm not arguing that that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's a thing. But if your goal is to eliminate the problem, what's my motivation? So that sort of allows me to segue into the question of power and money within a bureaucracy or even just a political system. Yes. So what's your take on that? Um, I, I, power and money are the, are the two basic currencies that... So defined currency, for Currency, a, a commodity good that has value. Okay. Um, you know, if I go to McDonald's in... Paulsbow, Paulsbow, Washington, down the street, with 10 euros and order a, a, a number three meal for $5, and I give them a 10 euro note, they're going to say that I, it, it doesn't have value. It may have value in France, Germany, but sorry, that, that is not good currency here. In the political arena, you have money and you have power. Power that being getting people to do what they wouldn't normally do, and the and the money that you can 
pay people to do what they wouldn't already do ordinarily do or would reinforce them wanting to do what they want to do so in other words who benefits right back to who benefits back to who benefits um, our political system and uh, codified in Citizens United Supreme Court um, has opened up the it's greased the skids for the exchange of currency um, in terms of the relationship between political action committees, industries, business and whatnot and how they can funnel, funnel their money into the political system. Okay, You don't necessarily go out and buy Votes, you know, here's ten dollars. Vote for me, okay? Can't do that. You still can't do that. Um, but what that ten dollars will do is to buy marketing time to leverage the lack of critical thinking skills to get people to do what they wouldn't ordinarily do, which is one, go out and vote because that's lost popularity in this country. And two, they're going to vote for somebody that they wouldn't normally do because they look good, because they said the right things, etc. For those people who have either enough money, whatever that is for them, or don't necessarily value money, they value the, the, the gratification of being able to leverage people's behavior. Um... There's people that just really enjoy manipulating people. In politics. In politics, and I would say in day-to-day -day life. Yeah. And so it, um, politics is, is, is like the, the manifestation of, of this desire of many people to get other people to do stuff. So are you suggesting that politics may attract sociopaths? Uh, I, I think that, you know, truthfully, and if you put it back into Machiavelli, for those sociopaths who know how to follow the rules, there's plenty of people that do good and bad things or, or don't do bad things because it's just yucky. It's a bad thing to do. There are other people who don't do what I would call bad things because it's not in their interest to do bad things. Okay, so Which is the true Machiavellian attitude. If it doesn't suit your purposes, why bother doing it? Right. And as a California legislator said, if you can't eat their food, drink their booze, and fornicate with their people and vote against them the next day, you have no business being in politics. Jesse Unruh. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, it, it, a marvelous politician who, um, in his later years, <laughs> spoke the truth. Spoke the truth. And, again, I can't emphasize enough my view that... Um, there was way too that hit too close to home. You can't handle the truth, and I go back to Lord Avon, um, and he's a big dude. He's not some 
guy from a state college with with a master's degree, he was way up the food chain, saying, oh no, I can't possibly conceive of such atrocious behavior, so therefore it must not exist. Right, and as we have discussed before, don't... <laughs> Just because you don't understand me, don't say I'm stupid. Just because you can't comprehend this horror, don't say it doesn't exist. Right, right. It's like in Rwanda. We couldn't conceive of the fact that these people were slaughtering one another with machetes. Yeah. Oh, that can't be. Yeah, nobody would do that. Well, yeah, about 300,000 of them had it done to them. Yes. Um... And, and and we seem to really and here here's a an appropriate in my mind an appropriate is that you don't expose three four five six seven year olds to violence to pornography to some of the more gritty aspects of our culture there is there's age appropriate and and there's developmental appropriateness that that we exercise as parents uh, that we exercise in in the law you know those kinds of things so i'm not advocating that it, we start showing videotapes of ugly things at 9 months old but what i'm suggesting is don't let your own um preconceptions or your ability to conceive things dictate the reality around you. Um, I, I I choose not to be real discounted. Oh, uh, false flags deals. Right. Um, there's the 9-11 conspiracy. There's lots of different conspiracies out there. Okay, I don't know the truth. And I cop to the fact that I never will. Not because I'm not interested, but because those who control the information are going to determine what I do and don't know. But... Is there a case to be made? It, who benefits from a, a given horrible tragedy? Does that legitimize the possibility? It's, it's No, I'm willing to engage in a conversation about that because it's worth having. I'm not going to shy away from it simply because it doesn't fall within my comfort zone. Right, within your worldview. My worldview. Um, yeah, I've got a pretty narrow worldview and a slightly off tr- off magnetic north moral compass. Um, and, and those are choices that I make to guide my, my own life. But when you start getting into the real world, and I say that in terms of your job, are, you know, are you a teacher, are you a politician, are you a policymaker... Um, are you an electrician? You know, there are certain norms that we all follow. Hacking three hundred thousand people up with machetes is not within our norm. No, it's in somebody else's norm. And if you want to decide how you're going to interact with that, be it sending peacekeepers and boots on the ground, or not. Do it, be, and you you had the strength and whatever strength that is 
to be repulsed by that reality and say, you know what, that's their people. That real that is a reality. Are we going to do anything about it? And and whether it's uh, I, I've learned that if you have created a policy or you're you're pursuing something by sheer virtue of it's the right thing to do it better be a huge undeniable issue because doing the right thing isn't always good enough there has to be a payback there has to be, <clears throat> somebody has to gain from it right um if you're going to send mother's sons off to die in a war there better be a real good reason for real it. good reason and as a as a political entity uh, this this United States um, we enjoy a lot of really great things and it is difficult for a lot of people to envision a place where they don't exist. Freedoms of speech, press. Uh, we we. It's easy to take for granted. And well, geez, just we can do that. Why can't you? Well, get wrapped around the fact that there's people who can't. All right. You mean you don't have a Fifth Amendment that says you can't be forced to self-incriminate? Yeah. You mean yeah. they can torture you into a self-incrimination? Right. Oh my goodness. Right. How is that possible? Well, well you, you do it in black camps in various countries that don't have a problem with it. Or Chicago. Or Chicago, yeah. Doesn't have a problem with it. You mentioned earlier uh, the vote and you know getting out the vote kind of thing. Why do you think there is such a lack of voter enthusiasm in this country? The political machine... does its thing outside the reach of the voters. And I, I also happen to believe that the people, the, the freshmen, senators, congressmen, congresswomen, uh, whether it's going to D.C., going to Olympia, state very few of them go in there with the idea of I'm going to become what what I'm describing. They they truly believe that they're going to make a difference. That I'm going to go to DC. I'm going to go to Olympia and change things. Well, no, you're not. What you're going to do is to spend the first two terms learning how the system works the proverbial finding the bathroom and okay. also trying to get reelected and get reelected and so going there to make change and to represent your constituency is at odds with how the system is designed to represent your constituency you only have to re you have to represent your constituency enough or well enough to get reelected. And so there's deals with the devil that you make, <laughs> log rolling, 
revolving doors, you know, all of those kinds of things. Um, and then coupled with how people get elected, it creates this morass and, and this uh, distrust of politics. Why should I vote? It, it doesn't really matter. The, the whole notion of one person, one vote, um, it, it, it doesn't have the this, this same meaning, the same credibility. Um, why does it matter? The, the idea that they're going to do what they want to do anyway. Why should I vote? In fact, there was a recent uh, publication by uh, out of Princeton University that suggested that, in fact, the average voter has zero influence. In fact, the voters themselves altogether have virtually zero influence on policy Yeah, because of the way the system works. And we have a so-called two-party system, which is sort of pre-vetted. It's like which member of Skull and Bones uh, society are we going to elect for president, or which graduate of Harvard Law School are right. we going to to elect president, things like that. Right. Um, so I certainly think there's lots and lots of good reasons people are disillusioned with the system, because they, it, it's supposed to be a democracy of some sort, and yet we have no real say. Yeah, well, and... Um, The other thing is, well, I don't vote because I am. It does. My vote doesn't matter. Well, first of all, your vote does matter. It matters to the politician as to whether they get your vote or not. Okay, so it does matter. It doesn't matter once they're in the capital, because they're gonna. They they need to do their own thing. So right. they can come back and get your vote again. And so, the system, I, I would challenge the notion of, has the our political system evolved into truly a representative government? On paper, you bet. In in the mechanics of sending folks to the capital, yeah, the argument can still be made. But you, you're really going to have to convince me to what degree is it in the politician's best interest to truly represent their constituency. And my static, my confidence in that is is eroding. Congress has got low marks, but individual Congress people have very high marks. Right. We hate our congressmen, or we hate Congress, but we love our congressmen. Right. Yeah. Right. And um, that that is such a gem, and that's a statistical gem. That is right. not um, just some cynic's catchphrase. I mean, you can read that stuff, um, and and it crosses poll after poll after poll. It's not is is the message. The message is the same. It's just to what degree. Um, Am I willing to throw my congressperson under the bus because of my disdain for Congress? Well, no, because he's mine. 
or she, and or she is mine. Um, that that means I would have to take responsibility. I don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned earlier uh, in our conversation uh, something about policy entrepreneurs. Oh yeah. Um, I know we're getting away from bureaucracies, but let's just talk about that. that policy entrepreneurs, that's fascinating. Well, uh, this cat named John... Cat, sorry about that. This dude there. <laughs> that's much uh, more modern. Named John Kingdon. Um, he created... And, and he's got a whole body of work. Um, and the thing that really resonated with me was his garbage can model... Of policy development. Okay, garbage can model. Okay. Yeah, it may be garbage pail, but it's garbage container. It's not like a pizza that you put everything on in that's kitchen. Uh, no, it's okay. it's it's where you accumulate refuse and then pluck things out as you need them. <laughs> okay. Ah, so this is for saving garbage. It, yeah, and the idea behind uh, this policy development model is that you've got these folks out there or institutions that are called policy entrepreneurs and they create solutions to problems that don't exist and metaphorically here's here's the solution to a problem and I'm going to put it in a three ring binder and put it on the shelf and wait for the problem to happen so we can immediately pull out the solution implement it and then we'll get stuff that we want to quote unquote solve the problem, but also get some other stuff in there too. So sort of like the Patriot Act that had to wait for the for nine eleven before they could actually get it passed. Yeah, and and that is a a a, a, a tragedy, but is it, it and is such a brilliant. Um, Example or illustration of the idea, um, and in in spite of uh, you know, I was in school when when nine eleven occurred, and I, I I was so horrified by the what came out of nine eleven in terms of the the increased police state, or at least the feeling of it, and the codification of, of essentially narking off your neighbor. And we still see residuals of it. Um, is somebody acting differently? Is there a bag on the ground that doesn't belong there? You know, there's this heightened sense of paranoia. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. But who benefits from that that sense of heightened uh, vigilance? Right. Um. So, so yeah, nine eleven illustrates that, and and the the speed at which it went through, um, and it was like, wow, if if we had pulled this out in a vacuum, it never would have happened. No. So, Kingdon's model would suggest that that a large part of the policy that evolved out of nine eleven was was written beforehand, and it was just waiting for that moment. Um, you know, aviation having crashed an ultralight and hitting the ground really hard, I, I like to use that one too, is if if you want to get increased regulation and, and you name what it whatever it is, if you you want better flush toilets in your seven eighty seven or seven seventy seven, um 
have your plan put together to make it happen and then wait for that problem to occur. So in the words of Ram Emanuel, who is uh, mayor of Chicago at the moment, never let a good crisis go to waste. Abs- absolutely. And um, does, does that mean I'm advocating that we shouldn't be prepared? Absolutely not. <clears throat> All I'm saying is it behooves us as voters or not voters or whatever, uh, members of a, of a country in some sort of a rep- representative democracy, it's in my personal best interest and our collective best interest to think about things and say, wow, that really happened fast. The the 556 bullet, green tip bullets. Right, the uh, M80, M855 green tips that the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives has just decided to regulate out of existence. Yeah. Where did that come from? It, has there been a, a, a spike in um, cop killings with M M855 M855 bullets maybe there is I don't I don't know the statistics I don't have access I know that it hasn't come up right or as a as a ABC breaking news that that a, lar- a disproportionate number of, of police officers and law enforcement have been downed by these particular bullets so where did it come from? Right. What's what's the agenda behind it? I'm I'm not being necessarily a conspiracy theorist, but what's the advantage, and to whose advantage is it to outlaw uh, public or yeah public purchase of these bullets? Is this police unions versus private sector? You know, gun owners, or is this? Um, government paranoia, mm-hmm. uh, or just uh, a, a payback by the BATFE for uh, to the to the uh, say to the NRA for a recent Supreme Court loss uh, on the interpretation of the 1968 Gun Control Act. And and if you look at the currency of power. And money. The implications of of this classification of these bullets has going to have effects both financial and power. Producers are are not going to be able to sell what they've already produced and and sellers in the retail. Okay, so there's there's a financial impact there. And in fact, the producer is Lake City Arsenal, which is a government institution that manufactures ammunition for the United States Army and Marine Corps. So they've just recently gone to a different bullet, the M855A1, and they're looking to get rid of all these stocks that they've had at a profit, or at least not a break even, I should say, not a profit, but breaking even, recouping some of their losses. Is this a um, is this a a challenge between the DOD and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms? 
and, and going back to power being a currency, who is trying to co-opt one or the other's power, solidify their own, preserve their own, become the go-to agency for various decisions, advice, studies. Um, this isn't about bullets. Right. That has we, virtually nothing to do with right. it. Right. And it's being framed. The narrative is we're trying to protect our cops. Right. And believe me, that's a, a, a good goal. I, I think that cops should have maybe an elevated level of, of awareness on our part to say they go out and stick or themselves they, in... They put themselves in dangerous situations for you us. You bet. Mm-hmm. If I was a cop, how would I feel about me being used as an excuse or a ploy to meet the desires of any number of government agencies as a as a power grab um, or okay who's going to enforce the sales do we need a few more people in this department to monitor the disposition of surplus ammunition so it's in somebody's interest to have more people to expand the enforcement of this directive, it fits the model. Yes. So is it going to cost the Department of Defense more money to get rid of this ammunition that they could have otherwise mitigated costs of? Mm -hmm. Is it going to allow the Department of Justice to increase its fiefdom? Mm Mm-hmm. By having more people to enforce this law or this ruling, so uh, yeah, there's a lot going on here that we don't really, we never even think about. And the NRA is going to be a beneficiary of this decision, mm-hmm. whether it stands or falls, because their membership is going to go up. There's going to be people channeling money to them to fight it. Um, who benefits? Well, in the short run, a lot of distributors that have this ammunition in stock have been benefiting because it's all being sold and the prices have have doubled in the last week. So there's a lot of people benefiting from this, whether it's intentional or just, wow, I happen to be in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. But there's... Yeah, there's benefits all around. And so, folks, all I'm suggesting or, or, or asking, and I'm excited, I get to teach a, a, a federal government class in April. I don't care whether people or agree or disagree with that. That's really not as important to me as an instructor and as somebody flapping their gums here. But if, if I just get some people to say, wait a minute, let me think about that. And let's not limit my ability to conceive of things because of my own norms and say, yeah, I guess it 30,000 
hacked up people or 300,000, that's not in my reality. That doesn't mean it's not in anybody else's. So on that note, I think we'll wrap things up. Uh, I guess you could say the thesis of this talk today has been do your research, do diligence, be aware, and, um, you know, don't just take things at surface value, start digging a little bit. So until our next episode, I'm Gordon Fry. I'm Dylan Funnel. And do your research. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions. If you enjoy this show, please visit us online at badcatshows.net, where you can find show notes, links, and news about upcoming events. Please consider supporting our work by donating via PayPal or visiting our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash badcatshows, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.